from the classroom to the emergency room, OR and beyond. You're joining Trauma ICU Rounds with your host, Dr. Dennis Kim. Welcome to Trauma ICU Rounds. I'm very excited for our guest today. Joining us on Rounds is Dr. Samuel Tisherman. Dr. Tisherman is a tenured professor of surgery at the University of Maryland School of Medicine. He's the current director of both the surgical intensive care as well as the surgical intermediate care units at Shock Trauma Center. Dr. Tisherman completed medical school at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine, where he also completed his residency and fellowship training in surgical critical care. He also completed a research fellowship under the tutelage of his research mentor, Dr. Peter Saffer. Sam's clinical interests are diverse and include hemorrhagic shock, cardiac arrest, as well as hypotensive fluid resuscitation and therapeutic hypothermia. Sam is the recipient of numerous teaching as well as preceptor and distinguished service awards. In fact, in 2009, he was awarded a Lifetime Achievement Award in Trauma Resuscitation Science from the American Heart Association. Dr. Tisherman is involved and holds numerous leadership positions with all of our major national and international surgical organizations, and he is the recipient of no less than 25 completed grants and two active grants, one of which is specifically examining the safety and feasibility of emergency preservation and resuscitation for cardiac arrest from trauma. So, uh, Dr. Tisherman, I wanted to welcome you to Trauma ICU Rounds. Thank you so much for joining us today. Great. It's a pleasure to be with you today. So, Dr. Tishman, can you take us back? This concept of emergency preservation and resuscitation, this is now something you've been working on for 30 years. For those listeners who are unfamiliar with EPR, take us back to the very beginning so that we can get a better understanding as to how this all evolved. Well, as you mentioned, Dennis, when I was a student and as a resident, I worked with Peter Saffer, who's known as the father of CPR. So when I went into the lab, I was uh, basically the only person in the lab who was training in surgery. Other people were in emergency medicine and, and critical care. And most of the lab work was focused on cardiac arrest. So we talked about how we can apply what was going on on that side of the lab to trauma patients. Now, certainly in cardiac arrest, you can do CPR and maintain uh, blood flow for a pretty long period of time to buy time to do things like defibrillate or get somebody to the hospital or to give drugs. With trauma, though, if you've exsanguinated, which is the main reason uh, trauma patients arrest, doing external CPR just doesn't work because there's not enough blood to pump. Uh, so that's one of the reasons that we as trauma surgeons have done emergency department thoracotomies so that we can clamp the aorta and whatever blood is left, we're going to be able to pump it to the heart and brain. We can do direct cardiac massage and we can hopefully find an injury to fix. But we all know that the outcomes, even with ED thoracotomies, are pretty bad. We're talking about 5% or less of people who get ED thoracotomies will survive neurologically intact. So given that, we started thinking, well, what can we do for the cardiac arrest patient who has trauma and who has exsanguinated? And the main concept that we started working on was, can we just buy time for the surgeon to control bleeding with something? And the main something we've been working on is uh, hypothermia. And this was actually at the same time we were starting to work on mild hypothermia after non-traumatic cardiac arrest. So it all kind of fit in with what the lab was working on. And what we worked out in the lab 
way back then was basically a dose response of the longer you wanted to allow the animals to have a period of no blood flow after they've exsanguinated, the colder you had to go. So we went down as far as 10 degrees centigrade that could allow up to two hours of no blood flow after exsanguination with recovery to normality as best we can tell in animal studies. That's how this all got started. So getting patients down to 10 degrees Celsius, this is pretty profound hypothermia. For those listeners who aren't familiar with therapeutic hypothermia for, say, post-ROSC targeted temperature management, we're typically targeting temperatures of between 32 to 36 degrees Celsius, whereas in the setting of a deep hypothermic circulatory arrest in the OR for cardiac surgery, temperatures typically get as low as 15 degrees Celsius. So certainly that was one of the things that led us to think this could work because you know, cardiac surgeons have been using deep hypothermic circulatory arrest for years to operate on the aorta, to operate on kids with congenital heart defects. And yeah, you're right. They typically go down to 15 to 18, depending on what they're doing. The other thing that kind of led us to thinking this could work is the anecdotal literature of people who drown in cold water and were underwater for an hour or more, get down to very cold levels, but they cool fast enough to preserve the brain. And then if you can resuscitate them, often with cardiopulmonary bypass, they can survive and do quite well. But it was kind of interesting, and maybe this is the way surgeons tend to do things, is that you know, cardiac surgeons have been doing this for years and years and years, but the amount of literature and science behind it, lab work behind it, was not very great. But that is one of the things that really pushed us to think this really could work in the trauma situation. So how did we get to where we are now? Back then, I'd imagine that a lot of the early work started with small and eventually large animal models. Can you elaborate or provide us with any further insight into how this all evolved? Right. We, we did some large animal work, and so did Peter Ree and Hassan Alam did some uh, similar work all in, in large animals, which allows us to do things like use full bypass, have the animals recover for whatever number of days we want, and actually look at neurologic function. But as a side, we actually did develop a rat model of EPR with a very a tiny little rat bypass circuit. Uh, as you can imagine, it's very, very easy to cool a rat. It's harder to provide long-term intensive care for a rat. <laughs> yeah, as part of our weekly foundations course at UCLA, we do a rat dissection lab. And Year after year, the students love that. The, the anatomy is actually pretty cool when you do a little sternotomy on these guys. Oh, yeah. So for those of us who may not be very familiar with the potential beneficial effects of hypothermia, Sam, what are some of the major metabolic advantages or effects of profound hypothermia? Well, it's been interesting, particularly if you look at the, the mild hypothermia, as you mentioned, after uh, resuscitation from cardiac arrest, because if you cool down to just, say, 34 degrees, 32 degrees, the impact on global body oxygen demands is not that great, although there is some some change. But for us, when we're talking about allowing the body to have no blood flow for an hour, two hours, you really need to decrease metabolism profoundly in the it's the longer the, the period of cardiac arrest that you are anticipating, the colder you have to be to uh, allow that to happen safely. So that's why we're going to such cold temperatures. 
So for us, the main issue is just decreasing oxygen metabolism. Certainly, we would love to find some pharmaceutical or, or fluid that could allow that same sort of no blood flow period without the cooling, because cooling, uh, as we'll get to, I'm sure later, is kind of difficult to do in a full-size human. But the, the other interesting side of this, though, is that the mild cooling after cardiac arrest does a lot of stuff that's not really just related to oxygen demands because it decreases free radical production, excitotoxicity in the brain, lipid peroxidation, all kinds of other bad things that happen often with reperfusion uh, that you can squelch by just cooling a few degrees. And it was really, it was actually kind of interesting observation in the lab that people just serendipitously noted that animals that happen to be a little bit cooler had better outcomes because nobody thought that two or three degrees of temperature change would make a difference, but that was a key finding. That was back in the, the early 90s that that observation was made, which led to then, okay, well, maybe a little cooling after cardiac arrest could be good too. And what are your thoughts, just while we're on the topic of post-ROS cooling, does the benefit come from avoiding fevers or is it the actual hypothermia itself? And what are you guys doing for in-hospital cardiac arrest? Yeah, that's a great question. The sense early on was that, that cooling down to 34 degrees by itself was beneficial, but then subsequent studies suggested maybe it wasn't that different than, let's say, 36. So you've got the targeted temperature management trial that showed no clear benefit between 33 and 36, although there's arguably some other data around that suggests maybe cooling a little more is better. We certainly, in our institutions, the University of Maryland, tend to be, I guess I would say, believers in hypothermia. So we will tend to cool people a little more, perhaps, than others. Certainly, preventing fever, I think nobody would doubt the importance of that, but we're, we would cool people. But I think the other piece of this that's unanswered and very difficult to answer is all these studies kind of lump everybody together. You have somebody who had a cardiac arrest. You don't really know how long they had no blood flow. You don't really know how long or how good the CPR was, and now you got them back. And then we just say, okay, everybody gets temperature A or temperature B. My guess would be if we could figure out some biomarker to tell us this patient should be at 33, but this patient should be at 36, that'll be the way to go. But right now, we just don't know. Yeah, indeed. The search for the ever-elusive biomarker that can help guide and direct therapy is being sought after for virtually every acute care disease process from procalcitonin for sepsis or neuron-specific NLAs for ischemic brain injury or my personal favorite because it's got the best name, KIM-1 for renal injury. So shifting gears a bit, Dr. Tishman, you published a paper in the Journal of Trauma in 2017 titled Development of the Emergency Preservation and Resuscitation for Cardiac Arrest from Trauma Clinical Trial, in which you outlined the study protocol and we'll post a link to the paper in the show notes. That's at www.traumaicurounds.com. But for those of us unfamiliar with EPR, when it comes to patient selection, how do you determine which patients should undergo EPR? Well, we basically needed to just start with some expert opinion about who we thought would best benefit from this. We wanted to have people who have had a cardiac arrest, but they either don't come back immediately, which then we're not going to be able to benefit them because they're doing fine, or they've been in cardiac arrest so long that nothing's going to help. So we tried to find some point in between there, and we chose 
a timing of having a cardiac arrest within five minutes of getting to the hospital and then not responding to the thoracotomy. So time is one factor. Recognizing, of course, that the time a medic tells you the patient lost a pulse could have little to do with when they actually lost it. And it's not, not a slight at all at medics. I mean, it's hard enough to figure out what's going on as you're traveling quickly in an ambulance. The other piece of it, which we did debate about for a while, was penetrating trauma versus blunt trauma. And given that one of our biggest concerns is uh, neurologic function, we did not want to start with people who had a probability or even a significant possibility of having a head injury or having massive tissue trauma just is not uh, amenable to uh, rapid, quick fixes. So given that, we started just with penetrating trauma. Although we did initially start with thinking of, well, what if it, you know, if it's clearly pretty focused blunt trauma, would that be okay? But our data safety monitoring board and other experts we talked with said, look, you know, you haven't done this yet in anybody. Let's start with the people you think have the best chance of benefiting. So penetrating trauma, which surgically is more straightforward, at least you know what body cavity you're going into, where the bleeding is going to be, and you don't have the potential of a head injury uh, was where we thought we would start. So in the last several years, there's been a lot published on the use of endovascular techniques in the emergency setting and Reboa specifically, and a lot of this work has come out of your shop. How do these emergency endovascular techniques play into the EPR protocol or paradigm? That's a, a great and evolving question. Certainly, Reboa is becoming more common and more standard, and some people will not open a chest and somebody's arresting from trauma, put the Reboa catheter up, maybe put in chest tubes, and then see what happens. And is that better or worse than opening the chest? Not totally clear. Certainly, there are advocates of still just opening the chest. So that's, that is one thing. And the other, there's actually another area of research in selective aortic arch perfusion, which is putting a big catheter up into the aortic arch and, and specifically flushing potentially a cold fluid or a fluid that's got potential drugs that you want to give that would go directly to the heart or brain. And we have people at our institution now doing some of the research on that. Merboa certainly... Uh, was a big uh, push coming out of uh, shock trauma. And we've talked about how can all three of these things intermix. And you could certainly envision, you know, a patient comes in in profound shock, you put their bow catheter up, then they arrest, you could then switch to EPR. So there's some various algorithms that may evolve from all of this as we're learning more about how to do these things, what the problems are, what the outcomes look like. But I think there are a number of tools that are, are coming along to help save some of these patients. And one of the things also that, that got me interested in working on this was the fact that really there hadn't been a heck of a lot done on how to save trauma patients who are resting in front of us. And we do simple things like intubate them, give them blood, crack the chest, but that hasn't changed in 30, 40 years. It's funny that you bring up the topic of the ABCs of trauma we recently had Dr. Paula Ferrada, a former shock rat, on the show, and we discussed the notion and recent work that she's been doing on a circulation-first resuscitation strategy for trauma patients presenting in hemorrhagic shock. Obviously, ACLS has taken on this CAB approach, downplaying the immediate need to secure a definitive airway 
due to the potential deleterious effects of positive pressure ventilation on preload and venous return and decreasing stroke volume or cardiac output, especially in someone who's already volume down, as well as all the other issues that relate to having to hold compressions in the setting of trying to intubate someone. What's your take? Do you think that there might be a role for a circulation-first approach to the bleeding trauma patient? I'll start with a maybe. Uh, certainly, pre-hospital, there's very little data that suggests it's beneficial to intubate somebody. Should they be intubated as soon as they get in the trauma bay? I think the literature certainly is suggesting there isn't as great of a rush. It is kind of uh, interesting that there's a little bit of that debate going on here at uh, the University of Maryland on the university side with cardiac arrest resuscitation because our anesthesiologists respond to every code. And if their view is that they have a tube, they can put it in and they're good at it, so let them just put it in. Literature would suggest maybe it's not so critical. And then it's the same group that's also there in the trauma bay when somebody comes into shock trauma, so people get intubated. So it's an important question to ask. It's one of those things that's very difficult to study, though. Agreed. So can you take us through maybe step by step? Let's say we have a, a young adult patient who comes in with multiple gunshot wounds to the torso, arrives in extremis, and then goes into cardiac arrest. So does the type of initial rhythm play into whether or not this patient is a candidate for EPR? And what would the next steps be in this particular setting? So for EPR, the rhythm doesn't really matter. It's more of, well, it does for the patient who doesn't arrest in front of us. So if somebody comes in from the field and they're in arrest, even if the medics say, oh, we just lost the pulse as we were pulling into the ambulance bay and the patient has electrical asystole, then we will not include that. So that bit aside, the rhythm doesn't change too much. So if the patient comes in in extremis, as you said, and now loses a pulse, that patient would be intubated, <laughs> would have big lines placed, blood started, and would have the chest opened. I think right now, anyway, I'm not sure anybody here would, maybe blunt trauma, they might put a bow up and, and do chest, it's not open the chest, but certainly penetrating trauma, the chest is going to be open. The aorta cross-clamped. And if you don't get a pulse back very quickly, and we're talking about within like 30 seconds to a minute, and this was a point made when we brought some a number of national experts together to talk about this. Is you know the, the patients you save with an thoracotomy are the ones that you open the chest, you immediately get them back, or you relieve the tamponade, or you clamp something that's exsanguinating, and you get a pulse back. So their feeling, and and that's went into our protocol is you don't get the pulse back, then you say okay, we're going to go to EPR. Now. One of the things that we've done, because this is very labor-intensive and we need people that aren't typically in the trauma bay, if the, the call comes in, it sounds like it might be a, a, an EPR case. So as you say, somebody with multiple gunshot wounds, maybe the medic says a thready pulse, the staff put out an EPR alert that goes out to a whole number of people like perfusionists, cardiac surgeons, me other trauma anesthesiologists, the blood bank. So we all are aware that we might have a case imminently. So that way we all start moving toward the trauma resuscitation unit or the TRU. 
and we're hopefully ready if the patient gets there and now needs CPR. So let's say we don't get the patient back with standard interventions and we say, okay, we're going to do EPR. So hopefully the perfusionist is there. They have basically a simplified bypass pump ready to go and we fill it with cold saline that's in a refrigerator right there in the trauma bay. The trauma surgeon basically takes a, an arterial bypass cannula and puts it into the aorta, proximal to the aorta cross clamp. And then once that's connected to the bypass circuit, it's basically a one-way circuit. We just pump the cold fluid in. We start pumping that and then open up the right atrial appendage to drain on the venous side and then just go till we get them cold. And during that time, there's not too much to do. If there's any injury right there, they can try to repair. They'll do that. Uh, you might get an arterial line in, things like that. But basically, the goal is get them cold and then turn everything off and then roll down the hall to the operating room. So this is all happening right in your emergency room. Yeah. So here is the trauma cessation unit is separate from the adult emergency department. So it's all shock trauma people. But if this were a different institution in the regular emergency department, trauma bay. And regarding the aortic catheter, is this something that's placed in a retrograde or antegrade fashion? It's just going retrograde in the descending aorta. It doesn't have to go very far up. So there's already the clamp distally. So basically, they just need to point it toward the arch and anchor it and start pumping. Great. And then in terms of the timing of getting these patients to your ideal temperature of, of 10 degrees Celsius, is there a specific time window or period that you have following cardiac arrest to do that? We're basically trying to do it as fast as we can. We can pump around two or three liters a minute of cold fluid, and we have about 50 liters cold, ready to go. And that's what we've been, been using. So it, we anticipate taking around 20 minutes or so. And we're measuring nasopharyngeal temperatures. We want to focus on getting the brain cold more so than the rest of the body. Obviously, the heart will get cold too as we're pumping retrograde into the aorta. So following up on that, in addition to the ice cold saline, when it comes to selective aortic arch perfusion, what other types of fluids, solutions, or vasoactive agents are being employed, and in what order? Well, it could be whatever you want. I mean, most of the work on uh, selective aortic arch perfusion, or SAP, has been with non-traumatic cardiac arrest. So some of the work has been on using um, oxygenated hemoglobin solutions as you're flushed toward the brain and the heart giving epinephrine intraarterially that way, directly into the heart, essentially. It could be whatever you like. As a quick aside, somewhere around 30 years ago, Peter Saffer actually put in a patent application for a two-balloon catheter that you could put up into the aortic arch that would have a balloon between the heart and the arch so that you could perfuse the heart with whatever you wanted to another balloon post-arch, so then you could perfuse the brain with whatever you wanted to. And then that distal balloon could decrease bleeding distal to that, just like what Raboa does. Or you could perfuse the rest of the body with whatever you wanted. So if you figured out that 
certain medications or fluids are good for the heart, but maybe something different is good for the brain, something different for the rest of the body. The concept is there, but nobody's figured out what those perfect solutions or medications should be. Yeah, it'll certainly be interesting to see how this evolves over time as more and more experience is gained. I can envision a protocolized or algorithmic step-up approach similar to like what we see for early sepsis management. Now, Dr. Tishman, can you elaborate further regarding the design of your current feasibility study? The way the study is designed, and this is what we worked out with the FDA, is to enroll 10 patients who get EPR, and then we can have 10 concurrent controls. That would be patients who meet the right criteria, but we don't have all the people around to do it. So I mentioned before, we have to have perfusionists, we have to have cardiac surgeons. For the moment anyway, since this is just a feasibility study, I want to be around. (laughs) The trauma anesthesiologists want to have at least a couple of the ones that are trained to do this around. So we basically have had a schedule of EPR days where we're on for an EPR and days that we're not on for EPR. So if somebody comes in on one of those non-EPR days, that patient could be enrolled as a control. So we are enrolling patients. We found, as you can imagine, we're trying to, to work with cardiac surgeons, perfusionists, trauma surgeons, all these people together and doing something that you know is outside of what we all typically do. There have been little challenges along the way in terms of logistics that we've worked out. Clotting has been an interesting issue. I certainly anticipated bleeding as a problem and hypocoagulability. But one of the, the issues that we've been working with is well, we don't want people to clot while they're on bypass. Because I should say that once somebody's down to 10 degrees and now you get them in the operating room, the only way to get blood flow going again is to put them on full bypass. And that theoretically could be done with fully heparinized circuits and not using heparin. But in the situation, we are using heparin. But how do you monitor that to make sure clotting doesn't happen in somebody who now has none of their own blood? It's all banked blood that has citrate in it. So not having clotting where you want to have clotting uh, has been something we've been learning about. Yeah, it certainly sounds like a real conundrum, especially when you take into account the balance between the prothrombotic versus antithrombotic or anticoagulation state in the setting of a hyperacute inflammatory milieu as a result of the trauma, not to mention the circuit and I'd imagine large volume blood product transfusion associated with resuscitation in this setting. Now, regarding issues with clotting, are these occurring primarily during the process of rewarming? We started off with basically having the cardiac surgeons and the perfusionists consider this just rewarming after a deep hypothermic circulatory rest case. But this is different. The patient had major trauma. The patient was in arrest prior to the cooling, which is a big difference. And for a cardiac surgeon to do a DHCA case, they can decide, okay, I'm going to start now. I'm going to cool the patient. And this is when I'm going to stop the circulation. Here, the circulation already stopped and we're, we're fighting against the clock to get the patient uh, reperfused. And now also, basically none of the patient's own blood is around. So that's where our filling the tank essentially with blood products from the blood bank. The cooling was all with just saline, but that's presumably now 
all drained out or the vast majority of it's drained out. So we're basically reconstituting the um, whole blood volume of the patient. And they also tend to still be bleeding somewhat. So it's constant struggle. And we've tried to work out like, so when do you give platelets? When do you potentially give cryo? Do you do things like give antithrombin three that they might be deficient of? A lot of questions that don't have typically ask. So our, our blood bank has been very helpful. Perfusion has been very helpful. We've talked with a number of coag specialists in the in the country to get their input too. And so has TAG been helpful at all in terms of figuring out what to give or what not to give in this particular situation? I think it's been very helpful. The, the typical studies that the perfusionists do, like uh, activated clotting times, they can do uh, heparinase or heparin level. Those tests seem to be thrown off potentially by the fact that the patient's full of citrate from the banked blood. So they might show that the patient's off the wall, but in fact, there might be some clot that we see. So tag is one thing we've started to use routinely here because you can run a plain tag, run a heparinase tag, and see if the abnormality you see with a plain tag gets fixed with the heparinase, which at least tells you there's some level of a heparin effect, which is what we're looking for. But how to quantify that is a little bit of a problem. Getting back to the study, there were some interesting issues regarding community consultation, as well as this whole notion of public disclosure and bypassing the whole informed consent process. Can you elaborate upon that a bit further? So anybody who's doing resuscitation research, whether it's trauma, cardiac arrest, even traumatic brain injury, there are methodologies to be able to do those studies with an exception from informed consent. Uh, It's clear that the patient can't give consent. It's also clear that the window of opportunity for an intervention to be beneficial is relatively short. So you don't have time to try and track down family and have a, a truly informed consent conversation with them. And then a number of other uh, things you have to show to be able to do this. And one other important thing is that you believe that your intervention could be beneficial to that particular patient. And that as far as we know from the literature, there's no clear data suggests that the intervention is either good or, or not. So with those caveats, then you have to get you know, approval to potentially do this from the Institutional Review Board and some national agency, which almost always is the FDA. And then you need to take this to the community. So there are two pieces of that. One's called community consultation, which is thought of as a two-way street of meeting with the community or getting feedback from the community. And people have done various surveys, but a survey in trauma clinic or you do phone surveys, have a website people can comment on, go to community meetings, whatever you can do to reach out to the community. I'll add, too, the number of researchers that use social media to reach out to the community and get input. So that's the community consultation piece. And you take whatever feedback you get from the community back to the IRB and the FDA. The other piece of it is, is just called public disclosure, which is trying to get the word out there that you are doing a study in the community. 
So now, there have been a large number of studies now in cardiac arrest as well as trauma using this whole process. To my knowledge, this may be the only study that's specific to penetrating trauma. And one of the main parts of doing this is trying to specifically reach the population at risk for being enrolled in the study. So recognizing the demographics of people who have penetrating trauma, we made a special effort to try to reach the African-American community in the city of Baltimore with our efforts with public disclosure and community consultation to you know, do the best that we could to reach the community that, that might be involved in the study. And my understanding, just from the little bit that I've read about this, is this was actually pretty well received. I mean, when you think about the notion of doing an experimental surgery or procedure on a potentially vulnerable group, you can imagine that might be taken one of a couple of ways, but it seems that this is something that was actually kind of welcomed and accepted by the community there. I think so. I think, for one, the community loves shock trauma, which helps a lot. They recognize that we're not the cause of the problems, but we're here to help. And they also recognize right. that young people are dying. And this is something that could save some of them. So I, I think those factors really helped a lot. And, and you're right, there was every once in a while there's somebody who will make some comment about experimenting on people. And that's, that's not just a minority issue. I mean, anybody you know, might have that same sense of doing any kind of trial where you're not asking for consent. But I think they recognize that there's a problem here and we're really trying hard to do something about it. And so outside of the penetrating trauma patient, any other particular clinical scenarios where you envision that EPR might be applicable to in the future? Well, certainly in trauma, we do think that we could expand to blunt trauma. It would have to be focused and have some sense that there's not a head injury or just massive tissue trauma. So that's one way to expand it. I think another expansion would be taking this eventually out of the hospital. If we could figure out easier ways to cannulate or maybe drugs to use so you don't use so much cold fluid, it could be taken in the field in the civilian world, but also the military, which is why the military is uh, interested in, in funding this. Other areas outside of trauma, certainly refractory cardiac arrest is one area that's been some research. It's not clear, at least to me, knowing what it takes to do EPR and also knowing what it takes to do extracorporeal CPR, we're basically using ECMO circuit for resuscitating somebody with refractory cardiac arrest. It's not clear to me that doing EPR is any better than just putting somebody on, on ECMO, which has been done in the field, in the Louvre. <laughs> so if that's possible, I'm not sure that EPR has benefit unless you need to cool them and then not perfuse them for a period of time while you're transporting them. Other areas that we've talked a little bit about, if you had some sort of uh, horrible toxin that is causing arrest or to treat it, the patient may arrest where you might want to preempt that with cooling, uh, something like that. So it could expand somewhat, but really the moment the main 
uh, area of interest is certainly trauma. You know, Dr. Tishman, we've gone over uh, quite a few things today when it comes to EPR. What are some key take-home messages or points for the listeners with regards to this emerging new technology? I think it's important to, to recognize that right now our outcomes from uh, resuscitating patients with a cardiac arrest from trauma are pretty dismal, and they haven't really changed in decades. The important aside with that is that they often have injuries that are fixable. So if we can focus on trying to find ways to just buy time to get them to the operating room and repair the injuries and resuscitate them, perhaps it's a delayed resuscitation after cooling or after doing something else to decrease metabolism, we could save them. I think hypothermia is one way. Perhaps some of these other technologies that are coming along, like Reboa or like the selective aortic heart perfusion, can help. But uh, more futuristically, if we can come up with some uh, drug cocktail that could inhibit metabolism in a safe and reversible way, that would buy time for the surgeon. That would be key because that could be given in the field, it could be given in the military. And at the end of the day, hopefully, we won't have all these trauma patients that we basically do a whole lot of intervention on. They still die in front of us. Uh, and hopefully some of them we can save and they can go back to leading normal, healthy lives. Now, while we're on the topic of outcomes, outside of safety, feasibility, and perhaps mortality, what other specific outcomes is this study looking at? Earlier, we talked quite a bit about the neuroinflammatory insult that occurs post-ROSC or post-cardiac arrest. And so is this something that we're actively investigating? The primary outcome is survival discharge from the hospital without significant neurologic disability. That's what we defined with the FDA. But certainly, we like to see uh, survival, but survival with good functional outcomes. So with people who survive, we will look at long-term, like six-month, 12-month function to be sure that they've gone back to independence and uh, normal functioning at that point. Because we know it takes a while, even at best, when you've got somebody that's had uh, horrendous injuries for them to recover. So you need to look at long-term outcome. And with that said, I think it's pretty obvious that there's still a lot more to come when it comes to EPR-CAT, or emergency preservation and resuscitation for cardiac arrest following trauma. I want to thank my guest professor this week, Dr. Sam Tisherman, for joining us on Trauma ICU Rounds. If you like what you're hearing, please do visit the website and leave us a comment. Also, please make sure that you do subscribe and let your peers, colleagues, and friends know about the show as well. Until next time, please stay safe, keep reading, and we'll talk soon.